We are going to be starting today's service um, with the song of lament, and we'll also be having a communal prayer of lament to start us off. Each day and week carries its own pain and sorrows that we mourn, but there are moments when the heaviness surrounding us in our communities and in our world comes like a wave. Here we find ourselves devastating shootings across our country and in our state in Monterey Park. Half Moon Bay, LA, Oakland, in the unjust loss of the life of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, and it continues. Violence, bloodshed, sorrow, family shattered, broken communities. We will start with this song of lament, and then we'll also move into a prayer of lament. Should my life be torn from me? Yeah. 
I'll be reading two scripture passages. After each passage, we'll have a communal response that will be on the screen. first passage is from Lamentations 3, 19 through 36 in the Message Translation. I'll never forget the trouble, the utter lostness, the taste of ashes, the poison I swallowed. I remember it all. Oh, how well I remember the feeling of hitting the bottom. But there's one thing I remember and remembering I keep a grip on hope. God's loyal love couldn't have run out. His merciful love couldn't have dried up. They're created new every morning. How great your faithfulness. I'm sticking with God. I say it over and over. He's all I've got left. God proves to be good to the man who passionately waits, to the woman who diligently seeks. It's a good thing to quietly hope, quietly hope for help from God. It's a good thing when you're young to stick it out through the hard times. When life is heavy and hard to take, go off by yourself. Enter the silence. Bow in prayer. Don't ask questions. Wait for hope to appear. Don't run from trouble. Take it full face. The worst is never the worst. Why? Because the master won't ever walk out and fail to return. If he works severely, he also works tenderly. His stockpiles of loyal love are immense. He takes no pleasure in making life hard, in throwing roadblocks in the way. Stomping down hard on luckless prisoners, refusing justice to victims in the court of high God, tampering with evidence, the master does not approve of such things. If you'll join with me. Lord, have mercy on us. The second passage is from Jeremiah 14, 17 through 22. This is also in the message translation. And you, Jeremiah, will say this to them. My eyes pour out tears, day and night, the tears never quit. My dear, dear people are battered and bruised, hopelessly and cruelly wounded. I walk out into the fields, shocked by the killing fields, strewn with corpse. I walk into the city, shocked by the sight of starving bodies. And I watch the preachers and priests going about their business as if nothing's happened. God, have you said your final no to Judah? Can you simply not stand Zion any longer? If not, why have you treated us like this, beaten us nearly to death? We hoped for peace, nothing good came from it. We looked for healing and got kicked in the stomach. We admit, O oh God, how badly we've lived and our ancestors, how bad they were. We've sinned, they've sinned, we've all sinned against you. Your reputation is at stake. Don't quit on us. Don't walk out and abandon your glorious temple. Remember your covenant. Don't break faith with us. Can the no gods of the godless nations cause rain? Can the sky water the earth by itself? You're the one, O oh God, who does this. 
So you're the one for whom we wait. You made it all. You do it all. If you'll join with me. Christ our King, in you all things are made right. Amen. Let's sing this chorus again together. God, we enter into your, your home this morning with our brothers and sisters of in Christ to bow down before you in humility and recognize that we ourselves are sinners and we see the sin of our communities before you and we know that that displeases your heart. May we confess that before you and join together at the same time praising your holiness and your faithfulness to us. Be over this time this morning. In your name we pray and God's people said, amen. Our scripture reading today is from 2 Samuel 13, 1 through 6. So it's on page 264, if you'd like to follow along. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Abnon, David's son, loved her. And Abnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible for Abnon to do anything to her. But Abnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimeah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Abnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Abnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Abnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. This is the word of the Lord. It's a very heavy week, and uh, coming upon this passage kind of 
fascinating how the Lord weaves in different passages depending on what we've been going through. Um, upon first studying this chapter, it's something that I actually wanted to give to one of our elders because uh, this is not one of these chapters you want to teach, right? Like this is, this is not anything enjoyable whatsoever. Um, but here we are going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we have to. So here we are in chapter 13. Going back a couple of chapters, looking at chapter 11 and 12, that's the turning point of David's reign there. Um, really significant happenings to bring us to here in this point in chapter 13. And it's where David's regime started to go south. Uh, last week I pointed out that we needed to keep 2 Samuel chapter 12 verses 10 and 11 in mind um, as we look at the next eight chapters in 2 Samuel. So here's 2 Samuel chapter 12 verses 10 and 11. And this is something just to keep in mind as we read chapter 13. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. We see what the Lord said in these verses begin to happen here in chapter 13. And this story is just an evil tragedy. It's just catastrophic in the disaster it causes within the family and within the kingdom. And we'll see that the main character in verse 1 is Absalom, who is Amnon's half-brother, not a full brother. And Absalom is Tamar's full brother. So they have different mothers. Absalom and Tamar's mother is Maaka, the daughter of King Tamal, or Talmai, of Geshur. And you can find that in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 3. Absalom is the third son of David, and we will be looking at him more in focus in the next several chapters. So soon after being introduced to Absalom, we're introduced to Tamar and then to Abnon. And Abnon is David's oldest son, meaning that Abnon is the heir apparent to the throne. That his mother is Ahinoam, 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 2. And he is the crowned prince to be next on the throne. And so when reading this story, there are some who might mistakenly read this as some sort of crazy love story. And you can read verse 1 and, and think this, right? Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And at, after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And you can think that this is a love story, but this is not a love story. This is a tragic story. This is a story of calamity. And the author is carefully writing to show this tragedy and, and, and fleshing this tragedy out. Now back to Amnon. Amnon had a ton of privileges as the crown prince. And he had a, a ton of power. He had a ton of privilege. And here's this guy who is lusting after Tamar, his half-sister. And right away you get a sense that this is not going to end well. And his father, David, also was guilty of this lust when he looked at Bathsheba. Verse 2, And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. And so Amnon apparently didn't have a way to contact her or meet her. She was living in a different house, just in a different place, and he's lusting after her, even though half-sister. 
Stephanie read through verse 6, so I'm going to skip that part. Um, but here we have an introduction of this other character named Jonadab. Jonadab is David's nephew. And he comes up with this plan to have Tamar come over to Amnon's house so that then he can take advantage of her and we'll, we'll pick up in verse 7. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pen and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Amnon sexually assaulted Tamar. And not only did he rape her, this is also incest. Leviticus chapter 18 verses 9 and 11 address incest. And yes, different mothers, but the same father, and this is prohibited. And so Amnon had committed this incestual rape, and in verse 13, Tamar said, now therefore please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you, which is not true, but you can't fault her for trying to save herself from this assault. And she's desperately trying to get out of this really dark and evil situation. She's terrified. She's fighting for her life. In verse 15, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred that which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. Lust and hate are very close to each other. Lust is, is not love, and, and what's translated here, the get up and go, in the Hebrew language, it's just two words. And his hatred for her is greater than the love that he had for her, and the author is carefully writing this very tragic story and all these evil elements attached to it. Continuing on to verse 16, but she said to him, No, my brother, for this is wrong, and sending me away is greater than the other than you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. In verse 17, the Hebrew actually doesn't even insert the word woman. It's just translated to put this out of my presence. That she's not a person. That she's looked at and treated as nothing of value, just like trash you would bring out the door. And the author is trying to get across this catastrophe, and, and, and I think it's getting across. Because I can't read this and not be really upset about it or not be emotionally charged about it or not think about just the injustice behind this. Verse 18, Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin's daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head, tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. 
And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Why does the author write this story, and why does he write it like this? Because this is just an absolute terrible story. Well, it's definitely written in a way for everyone who reads it to be on Tamar's side, so that you're pro-Tamar without a doubt. And so our sympathies are with Tamar, and this story is just so disturbing, and reading this and thinking about this just makes you kind of nauseous. And it's a, it's a sickening thing, it's a disgusting thing, and it's to conjure up this deep desire for us to see justice prevail from this great evil, to despise this awful sin. And it's not just some dirty story that's inserted here by the writer for us to just include it in, in the Bible. The, the writer's intent and the way that it, this is structured is written so that it's not some endorsement of what happened, but it's just showing what happened. And the author is writing this to us because it's supposed to make us want to just throw up. This is just so awful. This is so repulsive. And then the story gets worse. Everyone involved in this is wrong except for Tamar, who was the one who's sinned against. And Tamar could have been someone in the wrong if she did something like what her brother is going to do. But she's not shown to do that. And so Amnon is a person that we look at who's so passionate, but there's no love. It's just full of lust. He's full of lust. And lust and hatred, they're so close to each other. And it's a large part of why pornography is so damaging that there are so many studies done, including secular studies, most of them secular studies, as to the severe damage that pornography causes in people. And our society just keeps feeding into this lust, and it's this passion without love. And then you look at someone like Jonadab, who's this person who's very intelligent, comes up with this crafty plan, but he's a person without any principles. And in verse 3, we're told that he is a very crafty man. So he's very smart in figuring out this immoral plan. But there's no legal, there's no moral, there's no biblical principles attached to his intelligence. And this type of person is really dangerous and evil because they can figure things out as to how to carry out evil within their heart and their mind. And I actually look at them and I think that they're more dangerous than an Abnon, who is just evil but can't figure out how to carry that evil from within. And so around us, we have a lot of Abnons. We also have a lot of Jonadabs. And those are really dangerous people to have around because they're smart. They're really smart, and they can seem reasonable, but then they're not biblically principled. And we always have to look back to the Bible as Christians. We always have to look at God's word and not the intelligence of people. 
that we need to listen to God, we need to listen to God's word, and not the Jonadabs of the world who can reason around why things in the Bible shouldn't be so and making reasons and excuses as to why things are not to be so. And we have a lot of these types of people around us. Very, very intelligent people. No principle. I, I think that's the Bay Area. We have extremely intelligent people, just no principle. And these people are also dangerous inside the church because they have so many gifts to offer. They're good at so many things. But they're also the greatest threats if those gifts are not covered with godliness, righteousness, holiness. Jonadabs. And I've met a lot of Jonadabs inside and outside the church. But in the Bay Area, they're full of these Jonadabs. And this place is full of really smart people without principle, especially without biblical principle. And then we have David. David is this person who is full of righteous anger. But there's no justice. And so you look at verse 21, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And it's good that he was angry. When he heard all of those things happening, it's good that he was angry. But he didn't do anything about it. And he's just angry while Amnon just goes on unpunished. Tamar is not vindicated. And Absalom is waiting for his chance to take revenge with all this hatred that's just harboring in there. While David just does nothing. And some may look at David and, and reason. Now how could he do that? Well you look back in chapter 11 and look at what he did with Bathsheba. You look at what he did with Uriah. And you look at him and he kind of discredits himself. Like how can he speak to this? He's not doing anything but maybe he's looking at himself and saying like maybe I, I can't. Look at what I did. But the thing is, he's still the chief judge of Israel. He is still king. So discredited or not, he still has a responsibility to the nation for this evil, and he does nothing. Well, what could David have done? What could he have done? Well, he could have gone to his oldest son, Abnon, the heir apparent, and tell him, you're not going to be the next king. You've disqualified yourself. He could have done that. He could have gone to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 29, and cut Amnon from his people, as it says right there. And there's a debate as to what that cutting off means, but it can mean that Amnon would be banished from the kingdom. But whatever that interpretation, Amnon qualified for a punishment that was of much greater severity than nothing. And David doesn't do anything. And then we have Absalom. Absalom is justice without any control. So let's continue reading there, verse 22. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, but for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant, the sheep shearers, 
Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on their way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore his garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimei, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by command of Absalom... This has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore let not my lord the king so take it to heart as suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon's alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept, and the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur, and David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Back to Absalom. A person of justice without control. And so Absalom set up Amnon at this party where a couple years have gone by. You know, you think maybe things have smoothed over or whatever, but no, he's had this hatred in his heart this whole time. He's setting this thing up. And then at this party, Absalom orders his guys to kill Amnon. Then Absalom flees. We're told that three times in this chapter, verses 34, 37, and 38. And he goes to Geshur. He goes to Geshur, which is in the northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee. And why does he go there? Because that's where Grandpa is. Right? The maternal grandfather of Absalom is the king of the kingdom there. And so Talmai is also Tamar's maternal grandfather. And you can just imagine, Grandpa, I'm going to protect this boy because of what he did to my granddaughter. So I don't care if David comes attacks. I don't care if the king orders me. I do not care at all. So Absalom is just well taken care of there. And for two years, Absalom had harbored this hatred. Results in the murder of his older brother. And you look at all these different characters, and each one of them is unrighteous. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it reads, None is righteous, no, not one. And you look at this family, these are royals. These are the people who are supposed to know the law and what's going on. These are the people running the kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 5, it reads, Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. And you're reading this story and you're just thinking, how can this be? Because these are, these are God's people. God is going to use that family 
to bring about his kingdom. The Messiah is supposed to come from them. And then you look at church history, and it's actually full of these tragic stories like this. If you just look at our church history, it, it is not good what we've done. I'll just point out a couple things. We all had a Reformation. You studied this in, I think, middle school when Reformation's covered, right? I don't remember. It's been so long ago. But we all studied the Reformation. And so what brought about the Reformation? Well, the Roman church at that time had many priests who had mistresses. And the people were so relieved to know that their priest had a mistress at the time because that would mean that their married women would be less likely seduced by the priest. And that was kind of the, the mindset. And you take a look at Rodrigo Borgia, and you know whenever you become a pope, your name changes, but this is Rodrigo Borgia, otherwise known as Pope Alexander VI. This is right before the Reformation. He fathers several children by several mistresses, including the daughter of one of his mistresses, whom he fathers five children with. Everyone knew this. They just kind of went along with it. He was a cardinal, he was an archbishop, and then there was this papal vacancy. So what does he do? He bribes all the other cardinals to vote for him, and he becomes the pope from 1492. That date should ring a bell also, because he's the one that commissions Christopher Columbus, through 1503. Or you look at the pope soon after him, Pope Leo X, another pope that many of us should be familiar with, because this is the contemporary of Martin Luther. And when the 95 Thesis, this is that pope. He's famously known to sell indulgences so that he can build up Peter's Basilica. And so he's like paying people off like, oh, if you just give me money, we'll write off your sins. And that's what causes a lot of these problems. And so these are the leaders of the church prior to the Reformation. And it's terrible. And you have people even today looking back at our church history and saying like, what good can come from you guys? Like, look at what you guys have done. Look at what you guys have done when you guys colonize other people in the name of Jesus and do all these missions up and down California and went to South America and brought diseases and killed off people and like all this kind of stuff. What good can come from that? And it's just like David and his sons. And you look back at that story in 2 Samuel chapter 13, like what possible good can come from that? That is a dismal church history. That is a dismal past. The strange thing is that there's an encouragement there if you look for it. Because even in a time like this when our history looks really bad as a nation and we just can't seem to get things right and there continues to be these killings and there continues to be all this crime and all these different things going on. But if you look carefully if not for God preserving his kingdom and his people, we would have destroyed ourselves a long, long time ago. Isn't that true? We would have been gone a long time ago. We would have destroyed ourselves way long ago. There but for the grace of God go I. And chapter 13 is a really dark story, as is much of our church history. But the thing is, when you look at something like chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, you have to keep in mind 
2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Just as you look at our church history and the present day that Jesus promised that he's going to be coming back. And so here we see that Tamar is left in this desolate state. That her life and the life of others are ruined because of Amnon's passion without love. Because of Jonadab's intelligence without principle. Because of David's righteous anger without justice. And because of Absalom's justice with no control. But you look at God. God who is passionate with love. He is intelligent with principle. He is a righteously angered God, but he is just. And not only is he just, he is self-controlled. Because he could just wipe us out. And what's fascinating about chapter 13 is that God's not even mentioned in here. You don't see... uh, mention of God. There's no reference of God in all of these 39 verses. Interesting thing is, yet God is in control. Because you have to look back a chapter. Two chapters. And read 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 through 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And that's why we need to know our scriptures as well because we can look at what's happening today and just wonder like, God, what is going on? Are you even in control anymore? Are you even there? Do you even care? And so we begin to see this in chapter 13 that God is fulfilling a pronouncement of judgment against the house of David. And just because God is not mentioned in chapter 13, it does not mean that he's not in control. He said what he was going to do in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11, and it's happening in chapter 13. And this is showing that small encouragement that God is indeed in control. That his word is true, and 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11 is coming to pass in chapter 13. You cannot look at chapter 13 without looking at chapter 12, verse 11. And it seems that everything is just so crazy, so out of control, so rampant with evil, that God's not even in the story when in actuality, God is fulfilling his word. It might seem like chaos, but it's the chaos that God is in control of. Just like today. Just like in our present. That things just might seem so crazy and chaotic and out of control. But God's in control. Easter is quickly approaching. And we have to remember that that carpenter shop, that cross, that tomb, it's all empty. It's all empty. But the throne is occupied. In Revelations chapter 4 through 6, John is writing Revelation, and he sees Jesus seated on the throne. And in those three chapters, he mentions Jesus seated on the throne six times. He's just, he's clearly seeing this. And the Lord is in control even in the midst of dismal times, chaos, 
desolate times. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we just continue to feel this heaviness um, in our hearts and from what people have been experiencing with the floods and, and losing their homes um, to the loss of life with shootings to police brutality and whatever other things are happening in our nation that just kind of weigh down on us. And even though much of the world leaves you out of it and doesn't even mention you, yet you're still on the throne. And as Easter is approaching, Lord, may you prepare our hearts as we will be entering into a time of Lent in the next few weeks in anticipation of this time where very, very dark and where it seems that things are very chaotic and out of control, but yet you're still on the throne. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have uh, communion elements, uh, if you can take that out. Um, and if anyone is in need of prayer, Susanna is in the right front pew. She'd be honored to pray with you. That wafer that's on the top of your communion pack here, symbolizing the body of Christ broken for us. There's a promise that he made that he's returning and we do this until his return. We take this in Jesus' name. The fruit of the vine. Christ's precious blood spilled for us, for our sins. We take this in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, thanks for these simple but very profound elements symbolizing your broken body and your spilt blood for us. We ask, Lord, that we would be equipped to remain faithful and hopeful until your return, in Jesus' name.